Hello, I'm Hans Lee from Livewire Markets and welcome to Signal or Noise. This month we are taking a closer look at how investing has changed in light of the global banking crisis. And with that said, let's bring in the panel. David Cassidy is Head of Investment Strategy at Wilson's Advisory. Happy to have Daniel Silik as well, a Portfolio Manager at Capstream Capital. And of course, our series regulars here, Diana Messina, an MP, Deputy Chief Economist now and series regular. Thank you all for joining us. It's good to see you. Uh, let's just start with this. This is just a run of headlines from the last month here. Credit Suisse was bought by rival UBS, three regional banks were shuttered stateside, and Deutsche Bank's credit default swaps rose 300 basis points on contagion concerns. Those are all just within the last month. So let me ask you all this. Are we at the foot of a second global financial crisis? Diana, I'll start with you. The risk is obviously high. What we've seen in the banking sector is a perverse sign that interest rate hikes are working around the world. There was always going to be something that broke from the very fast tightening in monetary policy. That's kind of the point of interest rate rises. Whether it's a financial crisis or whether it's a crisis that results from the issues in the banking sector, I think it's probably more around we're yet to see the full impacts of the implications with what's happened in the banking sector and we may see some flow through to areas like the commercial property sector or maybe even unlisted infrastructure that has benefited massively from very low interest rates over a long period of time. That's actually something I've been hearing a lot of myself that commercial real estate may very well be the next shoe to drop especially in the in the US. David what do you think? I, I think it's unlikely to be the start of another financial crisis at least at this stage. I think if you look at some of the stress indicators we follow, generally they, they didn't get anywhere near the levels they got to in the financial crisis and have come off pretty quickly in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there was never really a genuine credit quality issue, at least in terms of what we can see at the moment. So from that perspective, I'd say no, it's not GFC Mark II. All right. Daniel, would you agree then? Yeah, look, so far I agree with everyone. Um, look, it's, it's a challenge for any central bank to apply restrictive monetary policy, to apply the brakes and not break something, as Deanna mm. said. Um, but so far, look, I think some cracks have appeared. And, you know, it started with the LDI crisis in the UK. We've had a few banks in the US and obviously Credit Suisse. But each was quite idiosyncratic in, in its own right. Um, and, you know, look at the US banks. It was obviously about um, a deposit base, which was quite narrow and, and undiversified. Um, and in the case of Credit Suisse, I mean, look, they've been tripping on banana skins for the best part of 20 years. Mm. I mean, UBS just paid one quarter um, for them relative to what um, uh, Credit Suisse have paid out in fines over the last 20 years or so. Um, and their equity price, even before Silicon Valley, was down somewhere in the order of 95%. So this has been quite a you know, long story in the making. And, you know, like I said, idiosyncratic reasons. And, you know, we don't think it's the start of a global financial crisis, but certainly more risk on the horizon. Yep. Well, speaking of risk, one of the, the things that comes up all the time is actually our first topic, and it's the risk of a global credit crunch. Now, central bank officials have repeatedly said, and obviously we've just heard it here from the panel, that 2023 is not necessarily 2008. But the shutdown of a bank, major bank actually, major global bank that was once thought too big to fail, has created a real frenzy among institutions. And how do we know this? Let's put up this chart from the Federal Reserve. Now, what does it show? It shows that $150 billion was borrowed by US financial institutions in the week following the collapses of Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. And of course, it just really shows how much banks needed that extra liquidity in the face of a crisis so that they wouldn't even be perceived as being the next to fall. But the question for the panel, is a global credit crunch coming? Deanna, signal or noise? I'm going to say signal. Whether this results in an actual credit crunch or some other flow through impact 
I'm, I'm not sure which one it will be, but I think that there's more to come. I mean, obviously, regulation, as David was saying, is in, at a much better quality, in a much higher state than during the GFC, and that should work to support banks overall. But that doesn't mean that you can't get pockets of stress in some of the regional lenders in the smaller banks, which we know is really where the stress is lying at the moment. That's why I think it's a signal. Yeah. Um, before I go to David, let's put up this quote from uh, Christopher Kent of the RBA, who said this recently when he was actually asked about the risk of all of this contagion spreading to Australia. Uh, he basically said, quote, Australian banks are unquestionably strong. Even if markets remain strained for a time, Australian bank issuance will continue to benefit from the strength of their balance sheets. And of course, the Reserve Bank paused uh, their rate hikes recently, giving themselves some optionality just to see how this all pans out. So given what you were saying there, I mean, would, would you agree with him or is he maybe being a bit too positive? Definitely. The banks, the Australian banks are in a good shape compared to the US and European banks because we have larger levels of regulation and we also have a much more contained banking system. We have, uh, it's more of a monopoly type of structure. The US has nearly 5,000 banks, whereas, I mean, obviously they're a much bigger economy than Australia, but even relatively speaking, we have much fewer but very large inst institutions. But that doesn't mean that the Australian banks can't suffer from a confidence crisis. And that could result from a liquidity crunch overseas and that could easily flow through into Australia, which would lead to a potential credit crunch, which I think is why there's still a risk of it occurring. Yeah, understood. David, what do you think about all this signal or noise? Signal in terms of tighter credit conditions. So I think lending standards will tighten, financial conditions will, will tighten, so signal there. But credit crunch, I'd say it's noise. I've distinguished between tighter standards and, and an absolute crunch. I think also you've got to remember there have been some offsets on the other side. Bond yields have rallied dramatically over the past month. That's part of the cost of funding. Uh, and also at least expectations for what central banks are potentially going to do over the next six months have moved dramatically. So from that perspective, I think the risk of the Fed or other central banks over tightening have probably gone down, at least in terms of what markets are now saying. Okay, so we'll say noise because you you know you don't think a global credit crunch specifically is coming. Daniel, I imagine you look at credit signals of some form every day in your job. What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Noise. Um, I'm going to say noise. Um, essentially, uh, look, we we look at credit spreads obviously, and we look at what's happened in you know the major bank um, credit spreads in the U.S. Look, there may be 20 basis points or so wider. Um, the major's anywhere from 80 to 100. Um, you compare that to the credit crunch, which was the GFC, and they were all in the three to 400 range. So again, are there some risks on the horizon? Absolutely, lending standards will tighten, um, but that's also typical of any recessionary environment. Um, when you, you know, approach recession, bank, banks tend to, you know, as we do as, as consumers, we tighten, tighten the belt strings a little. Um, so that's what we're seeing. Um, and just to bring it back to the Aussie banks as well, um, even lower beta than the US banks. So their credit spreads are out maybe 10 or 15 um, since Silicon Valley. So hardly notable. Yep, everybody's actually mentioned uh, tightening lending standards. We've got a chart a little later about that. So that's an incentive for you to stay tuned. Now, while bank shares have been hit globally, around the world, obviously because of all the, the risk of contagion and wondering who's next, plenty of investors have decided actually to move away from bank stocks into tech stocks, and that's our second topic. The Nasdaq has entered a technical bull market, and as you'll see in this chart from our Danny Research, which we're gonna put up, that rally has been driven by really the, the huge end of town, the mega cap end of town. The eight largest names that we all know and love, like Apple and Meta. So, 
Here's a question for the panel then. David, I'm going to start with you for this uh, second topic. Is this a rally that will end in tears or is 2023 actually going to be one of those years we see away from value, back into growth and back into those tech stocks? Signal or noise? I think if you're talking specifically about those mega cap franchises, the very cash generative mega cap franchises, I, I think their prospects are pretty good. It's obviously been a very sharp rally in the last few months, so maybe it's a little bit overdone short term, but we still like the prospects there. If we're talking about tech companies that make no, no earnings, no profit, I think, I, I think the market is going to be more differentiated over time. So uh, there may be still some concerns there. Obviously, Bitcoin has gone through the roof. I'm very sceptical of that. But in terms of those great companies that I think got oversold last year and have bounced pretty hard, I, I still like the prospects for most of those companies. All right. So for, for good quality tech specifically, you'd say Signal? Yeah, I, I think so. I think ultimately they'll prove to be relatively defensive into an economic slowdown. Okay, there you go. Daniel, what about you, Signal or Noise? Um, well, look, tech stocks are your ultimate long duration asset, essentially. Um, so what they're doing in terms of from a valuation perspective, there are cash flows way out into the future that have been discounted over the past you know, 10 or 15 years. So you've seen this huge run up, but if you've looked at the, the price action post um, COVID in, in terms of your chart, um, it's kind of gone sideways. Um, and I think more broadly at that sort of index level, we could be in for a period of side, sideways movement because I don't think rates are going back to zero. Um, and I don't think we're gonna get another you know, work from home induced um, sort of rally in tech. But I, I do agree with David in that there's gonna be differentiators. There's gonna be you know, strong performers which are more income-like um, in, in terms of their qualities, as opposed to true growth stocks. But from, from the growth stock perspective, um, you know, I, I say it's noise. I think we're in for a, a period of sideways movement, not too dissimilar to what we saw in the NASDAQ post um, dot com boom right. bust. There you go, <laughs> harking back to 2000. Um, before I go to Deanna, David and, and Daniel, obviously there's been so much volatility, there's been so many things that have been happening you know, headline driven or otherwise in the last month or so. I'm curious, how are you both posi positioning on, on behalf of clients? Are you putting more into growth? Are you putting more into value? Or I guess for, in Daniel's case, are you more of the short end, the long end? Maybe David, I'll start with you. How has positioning changed on behalf of clients? I mean, we're, we're always pretty diversified. So we run a sort of a balance of style. So we'll always have an element of growth, value and quality in our portfolio. At the moment, um, probably the ranking is quality at the top and probably growth a little bit ahead of value, just in terms of uh, we're thinking quality growth will be probably a bit more defensive. So we'll always you know, ma maintain a, a breadth of styles. Also, I wouldn't forget emerging markets. We're quite positive on emerging markets, not actually a style, but a, another sort of alternative in sort of terms of global equities. So we've got an overweight on emerging markets here okay. in terms of China reopening. Yeah, okay, so overweight on emerging markets. When you're talking about quality, what, what kinds of companies or what kinds of sectors do you say, right? This Talking is, this about is companies that are relatively defensive in terms of business cycle sensitivity, generally high returns on equity or returns on invested capital, and generally good franchises with moats. Um, they may be tech, they may not be tech, uh, but, but, but certainly quality as a factor, I think will do well into a, an economic slowdown over the next year or two. Understood. Daniel, what, what are you doing on behalf of clients, obviously being in the rates market? Yeah, sure. Look. Um, we're across rates and credit, and what I'll say is we're fairly cautiously positioned on the credit side. So even before the Silicon Valley issues, um, the way I'd characterise your risk assets, so equities and credit spreads, was actually that they were pricing in the recovery to a recession that hasn't actually happened yet. 
Um, and so, you know, we look at where credit spreads are. So let's say US dollar, IG credit, it's trading in the 130s or so. Five-year average is in the 120s, so marginally higher. But compare that to a recessionary episode where spreads can get to between 200 and 250. Um, and I'm ignoring, you know, GFC from, from, from that analysis. Um, even outside of a recession, in an ordinary run-of-the-mill risk-off event, so thinking a Q1 2016, a Q4 2018, stocks are down 20%, IG credit can still trade in a sort of 150 to 200 range. Um, and we're not there yet. So I just think that there's a lot of risks on the horizon. Um, so we prefer to be cautiously positioned. Deanna, signal or noise out of all this? I'm going to say noise in yeah. the short term. I think the rally looks a little bit overdone because at least for the next six months, interest rates are still going to remain at a high level to get inflation down and to get that growth slowed down that central banks want. The Fed's likely to keep interest rates there close to 5%, if not even a little bit higher for most of this year. I mean, there is the risk of rate cuts by the end of the year. But in the short term, I think the rally in tech stocks is overdone. Yes, there will be, I think, specific companies that do a little bit better. But from an overall point of view, I think the NASDAQ will underperform the S&P. And also, generally, we see the US underperforming countries like Australia over the next 12 months. But if we do get those high risks, higher risks of recession, which I think are a likely probability next year, and bond yields go down, then the tech sector could provide a rally again after the after the recession ends. Okay, well, let's move to topic number three. And we've been talking a little bit just there about the immense volatility in single stocks and tech stocks as well, more generally. But there were, of course, also some huge moves in the bond market. The two-year yield in the US had a 130 basis point trading range in March. Not the whole year, not several years, one month. And as we're going to see in this chart from True Insights, as we put it up there, volatility in both equities and bonds really has not been seen at this level since COVID and before that really 2012-13. So my question to you all, and Daniel, we're going to start with you for this round. Do you think you're expecting more volatility in the short end of the curve? Signal or noise? I'm going to say signal. Um, essentially, we're in a period of heightened uncertainty. Um, and the reason I say that is the monetary policy reaction function in times of crises, so think GFC, think COVID, um, it's cut rates to zero, it's, you know, initiate QE and completely dial up the tap when it comes to QE. Um, I'm going to say this time is a little different. And the reason is in those other periods, we actually had deflation. We had central banks globally who were struggling to meet their inflation objectives. Um, and today we're obviously in a period of heightened inflation. And while it is coming down, it's not coming down fast enough. And it's certainly nowhere near any developed market central bank's inflation target. Um, and as a result, the central banks are going to have to continue to lean hawkish. Um, and look, I understand why there's been a rally in rates post the, the Silicon Valley headlines. It's a uh, you know, a flight to quality. Um, but no central bank is able to wave the victory flag as it pertains to inflation. Um, so I think, look, in an environment of higher rates, you're generally going to be met with higher volatility as well. All right. More to come then from, from Daniel. Diana, what do you think? Signal or noise? I'm going to say noise. Okay. And the reason is because I think that all the economic indicators are now coming down the growth data is slowing both in Australia and globally. Inflation's coming down. We've had a de facto tightening in monetary conditions through what's happened in the banking crisis. There's more of that to come. The central banks are telling us that they are very close to the end of their hiking cycles. The Bank of Canada uh, might be on pause from now. The RBNZ 
said that they might not do any more from here. The RBA, we think that they won't do any more rate hikes from here. The Fed and the and ECB are probably one of the last ones that will continue to raise rates by, by another one or two times. So in that environment, I think uh, that the rates markets look fairly look fairly accurately priced. When I look at interest rate expectations from financial markets, to me, they're, they're in line with our own expectations, whereas before I thought that they were pricing in too many rate hikes. Okay, so David, we've got a signal, we've got a noise. Which way are you gonna follow on this, signal or noise? The equity market was suggesting that there really wasn't that much to worry about. The VIX didn't really move much at all. It was a little bit elevated through March, but didn't really move that, that uh, hugely. Whereas the, the move index, the interest rate uh, index, was at sort of GFC or COVID levels. So from my perspective, I don't think we're going to see as much volatility in the, in the bond market going forward. Uh, although I think maybe the bond market might have priced in a few too many Fed cuts over the next six months. So from that perspective, there has to be some recalibration. But Am I massively bearish because the move index went to GFC style levels? But not, not really. So from that perspective, noise. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting way of putting it as well. Thank you, everybody. It's time for our Charts to Watch segment. And we promised this particular chart a little bit earlier in the show. We're now going to give it to you. Deanna, you've brought along a chart around US lending standards. And I guess particularly there, the, the spread between the smaller banks and the larger banks. Walk us through this chart and tell us why it's important to you. Well. Uh, to me, this chart kind of tells you, explains what's been going on over the past few weeks. We've seen a massive tightening in lending standards, which actually started before the issues in the banking sector in the US and Europe. And it's occurring for both small and large firms. The tightening in lending standards is uh, around the same levels as we saw during the pandemic and before then during the GFC. So th this will have implications for economic growth. When you see a tightening in lending standards towards businesses, to commercial and industrial businesses, growth will have to slow because it will be harder for those firms to take out loans or to or to refinance. So that could um, decrease growth by 0.5 percentage points or so this year in the US. In Australia, we haven't had the same increasing lending standards and we don't have um, data in the same way that we get from the US, but it, it still hasn't been the same. So the impact on growth will be less here, but it could get worse if we see that confidence crisis, like we were talking about before, get worse in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I love that chart, actually. It's very, very good. Um, David, you've brought along a chart about something that we've all been talking about for a while now, really, the comparison between the Fed funds rate and recessions. Can you walk us through this chart and maybe how it's influencing your investment strategy? Yeah, well, I tend to like charts that challenge my central case view. And I think if you look at this chart, uh, you'd be predicting a pretty high probability of recession because the Fed doesn't have a great track record of engineering soft landings, if you look at the last 50 years depending on how you interpret the COVID recession, which I think was a little bit of a special case, and I'll, I'll call that a soft, soft landing in terms of the Fed pivot back in 2018. I think the Fed has managed to engineer three soft landings and six hard landings in the last 50 years. So prima facie, you'd probably have to lean on the side that we're going into a recession in the US. Having said that, I still think that there are some unique features of this cycle that are worth considering. We've got this massive inventory of unfilled jobs in the US. So I think the normal unemployment dynamics are gonna be a lot less prevalent or a lot, a lot, lot harder to engineer. So a big rise in the unemployment rate to me just doesn't look likely as a central case. Also, I think accumulated savings are still very high in the, in the US. There was just so much money given to households over the last two or three years. A lot of that's still there. 
we can argue about who's got those savings, but that's still there. So I tend to think not because of the Fed's great skill, we could still get away without a hard landing, or if we do see a recession, it'll be at the very mild end of historical recessions with only a very minimal rise in unemployment. So charts got me worried just based on the Fed's track record, but I still think I'm certainly not looking for a severe recession over the next 12 months or so. Well, there's more than a few market participants who always say central banks always hike until something breaks. So maybe there's something in that. Thank you, sir. Daniel, your chart is something macro investors look at all the time. It's the ASX OIS curve, but actually you've done a compare and contrast. So walk us through this chart. Um, so essentially what I'm doing is looking at, you know, the change in the Aussie OIS curve over the last month, just to show how many or how much of those hikes have been priced out by markets off the back of, you know, the, the recent Silicon Valley headlines and the like. And I just think the move has been too aggressive. Um, you know, I, I sort of alluded to earlier in the question about volatility, um, that we're probably in a period of structurally higher rates. Uh, which means structurally wider credit spreads, structurally higher inflation and structurally higher volatility. Um, and as a result, um, you know, central banks, you know, they, they can't um, wave that victory flag just yet on, on inflation. Um, I, I do think that they risk another uptick in inflation if they pivot dovish um, or if they're, um, you know, too dovish too soon, essentially. Um, almost like a 70s, 80s style where, you know, we saw a lot of volatility in rates. Um, so that really concerns me. Um, and, you know, the, the chart, if you looked at a similar chart in the US, it's even more aggressive. Um, so I think, look, markets have probably just moved a little bit too aggressively. Um, and in the near term, um, I think there's an opportunity to be sort of paid rates in, in the next few, few months and quarters out. There you go. That's going to do it for another edition of Signal and Noise. This has been absolutely fantastic. My thanks to our panel, to David Cassidy at Wilson's. Thank you. Daniel Sillick from Capstream and to Deanna Messina, of course, at AMP. Thank you very much. We will be back with another episode next month. Until then, if you've liked the show, please subscribe to both websites, livewiremarkets.com and marketindex.com.au, our YouTube channel and our podcast. We'll see you in a month. Thank you for watching. <music>